The following message is a presentation from Grace Baptist Church in Kettering, Ohio. All right. Open your Bibles, if you will, to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. And we are going to look, uh, if you are following along in your uh, study guide, uh, we're looking at pages 4 and 5 for the morning worship time. And uh, I assume we're supposed to be done somewhere around noon. So uh, if that's what we have, then we have approximately an hour. And so I, I planned a two-hour message, so I'll preach only half as long as I planned. How's that? I'm just joking with you. You'll get used to my humor. It's a bit twisted, all right? And I, I've tried over the years to untwist it, and I just, I just can't untangle it. So I have a bit of twisted humor, but uh, try to try to use it when it's appropriate, and so on. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 1 will be our opening text for this as we look at a number of verses of Scripture that are going to help us in what we are doing uh, this morning for this subject of accurate translation being possible and not necessarily a problem. Uh, there is an idea that has been circulated for the last 50 to 60 years that by virtue of translating a message, you have automatically corrupted it. And therefore, the Bible is a corrupt book, and we need to somehow retranslate it so it won't be corrupt anymore. I don't know how continuing to retranslate is going to make it uncorrupt if translation automatically corrupts it. But my view is given to you right out of the scripture itself that corruption does not necessarily happen when the Bible is translated. And we're going to look this morning at a number of different passages of scripture, and I want to just call your attention to Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, as we begin. Notice, a, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Notice there is not a period there. There is a comma. And after that is this clause, which being interpreted is God with us. So nobody here probably is a Hebrew scholar, but the word Emmanuel is a Hebrew word, and what does it mean? God with us. And what the Bible is doing here is showing us that you can communicate in more than one language without losing the meaning. Because very few of us in this room know Hebrew. But all of us in this room know a certain amount of English. And so we want to know what Emmanuel has to do with this passage, and God tells us which being interpreted is. And the, the words which being interpreted are often the idea of translating from one language to another. When Jesus was being crucified, they took him out to Golgotha, which being interpreted is the place of the skull. So a Hebrew, a person who speaks Hebrew, a Jewish individual who was listening to this and heard the name Emmanuel would immediately understand the exact same concept that an English person understands hearing the words, God with us. A person who speaks the Jewish language of Hebrew, hearing the name Golgotha, would immediately understand the exact same thing that an English mind understands with the phrase, the place of the skull. If you've ever traveled in the Holy Land, I have not yet done that. I have a free trip coming, but I haven't, uh, I haven't gotten that. By the way, that's when Jesus comes. I'm going to get a free trip to the Holy Land. And um, it'll be a lot safer then, by the way. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. There will be no bombs. There will be no uh, attacks from different groups. And, and those of us who travel in the Holy Land at that time will, will be much safer than with Jesus physically at our side uh, on, on a white horse. But anyway, uh, that aside, um, 
people that have gone to the Holy Land say when you stand and look at Golgotha, it looks just like a skull. Nothing is lost, nothing is added, nothing is subtracted, nothing is changed. Whether you say Golgotha to a Hebrew or the place of the skull to an English-speaking person, nothing is lost or gained or added or subtracted or changed or corrupted or diminished. If you say Emmanuel to a Hebrew-speaking person or God with us to an English-speaking person. That is a background. Let's pray. Open our hearts now, Father, to this concept that thou hast made it very plain in the Word of God that you use translation all the way through. And not a single time has anything been lost. I pray that your blessing would be upon the exact truth of the Bible today. And may Jesus Christ be elevated, may his name be honored here today, and may his word be honored because thou hast magnified thy word above thy name. And so may we not belittle the Bible today. May we not badger those who would defend it. May we not allow the word of God to be bound by what we have been told are inaccuracies. May we by faith today accept the message of thy word. And Father, I'm standing here today to defend and go against the onslaughts of the devil against the Bible. And I need the power of the Holy Spirit to do that effectively, and I am praying for that, and I am trusting in that, because I believe that's what Jesus Christ would want me to do today. And so I have no, pro no qualms about praying that in his name, under his authority. Amen. The society that will not accept one truth will very soon and eventually degenerate to a point that it will not accept one God. I have been saved for 46 years. When I first got saved and I would go out knocking on doors, I was met with this objection more often than not. Well, preacher, there's all these denominations. Nobody really knows which one is right. You know, I don't hear that anymore. I, don't, I haven't heard anybody say that in 15 years. After a while, after have, hearing about all the denominations, you know what I began to hear about uh, uh, 20 years after I was saved? I began to hear people say, Pastor Kagan, well, you know, there's so many Bibles, nobody really knows which one is true. You know what I'm hearing now? What makes your God better than my God? Where did that start? It started when we changed the Bible. It didn't happen by coincidence. That did not happen just because it happened as a direct result of the scholars, as it were, deciding that the authorized version is no longer applicable. The problem with the authorized version is that it is so applicable it makes carnal, wicked people uncomfortable, and so they decide to change it so they can re still read the Bible and feel good about themselves. Because nothing is any more applicable to the sores and the, and the, the oozing filth and putridity of our generation. Nothing will change it and heal it except the absolute truth of God. I want to give you this morning some ideas that will help you. Without doubt, translation can produce inaccuracy. I do not want to say that it is impossible for translation to produce inaccuracy. I'm saying today that it is possible that translation can 
be accurate. I want you to look in the introductory material there, number one, two, and three, right by the black box that says everything you add to the truth subtracts from the truth. This is a Chinese proverb. I want you to look with me, and we're going to be kind of in Bible study mode this morning, more, more like a Wednesday night format. So I'm going to ask you to be following along in the Bible. I'm going to uh, try to give you time to turn, but I'm, I do have a lot to cover, and I don't want to lose you. So Luke chapter 1, verse 1, talks about some non-inspired gospels. There were gospel accounts that weren't inspired. Let's look at Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 1, writing here, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, Luke tells us this, For as much as many have taken in hand, to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they <coughs> delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Luke is writing here, and he opens up in verse 1 with this statement that many have taken in hand to write down gospel accounts of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Many, he says. But if you study anything about the putting together of the canon of Scripture, you'll know that the Gospel of Matthew was written around A.D. 37, and you'll find out that the Gospel of Mark was written around A.D. 60, and the Gospel of Luke, which we're reading right here, around A.D. 66. What that means is that Matthew and Mark were written before Luke. Two Gospels. The last time I checked, two is not a synonym for many. So what does Luke mean here? Luke means that there's a whole bunch of people out there writing down gospel accounts. But notice what Luke says about his gospel. He says in verse 3, it seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first. How did he have perfect understanding? How did he have perfect understanding of all things? Did Luke have a photographic memory? Was Luke somehow gifted to write down the exact words of Jesus that he had heard and were in A.D. 66? Jesus died around A.D. 29, 30, somewhere in there. 30-something years ago, how many of you remember the exact words that were said? And I'm not referring to the time that you had an argument with your wife and she still remembers exactly what you said 30 years later. And that goes for men, too, by the way. You know, we can remember things, too, that we want to hold against somebody. No, you see, Luke is saying here, I've had perfect understanding because I'm inspired of God. He had understanding from the very first. In other words, the very first one, the, the originator, the creator, the word that was made flesh. And he said, if you read what I've written, verse 4, you'll know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. He said, if you read what I've written down, it's absolutely accurate. And by the way, this has nothing to do with the message, but notice the two words, in order, toward the end of verse 3. Sometimes we read the Gospels and we say, Matthew says it, this and then that, but Luke says that and then this. Which order is it? Luke's order is the one that's in order. Matthew writes things down in categories. Luke wrote thing, write things down in chronology. And that'll help you with things that don't appear to follow the same order as you read the Gospels. But see, there were non-inspired Gospels. There were people in the first century who thought, hey, you know, this is a hot topic. The ministry of Jesus Christ, the life of Christ. We can write this down. We can sell this. And people were trying to make merchandise of the readers. Oh, does that sound familiar? 
You see, there was a Gospel of the Month club then, just like there's a Bible of the Month club now. Let's notice, if you will, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter, Paul is writing to comfort the Thessalonian believers who had uh, been, <coughs> excuse me, attacked by heretics. And notice in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter. Notice these words. As from us. You know, what, you know what Paul is writing down? He's saying, now, there are people sending you letters, and they're pretending to be letters from Paul and Luke and their traveling companions, but they aren't. False epistles. This business of translating or changing a word here and adding a word there and taking out this verse and, and adding a thought here and, and rewriting this portion and, and saying this part doesn't really belong, that didn't start with Westcott and Hort in the late 1800s. That has been the devil's ploy since the Garden of Eden. Yea, hath God said. Did God really say that? Well, we'll just change this, and we'll add this, and we'll move this over here, because, you know, we want to make the Bible kind of that cozy, comfy book. Years ago, I stood in line at a Subway restaurant. The line was long, and I took the opportunity to start witnessing to the person behind me, since I thought the person would be behind me would be in line longer than the one in front of me. Yeah. And I started engaging this young woman in conversation and found out she had moved to the United States from Israel. Well, I have Jewish blood, so that immediately intrigued me. My mother was a Jew. And so I said, really? I said, I have a Jewish heritage. I said, tell me, what is the biggest difference you see between Israel and the United States? Without hesitation. She said, in Israel, we pattern our lives around our faith. In the United States, people pattern their faith around their lives. I was shocked. Probably an unsaved Jew had come to this country and had gathered in just short observation what we do in the United States of America. And that's one of the reasons for this multiplicity of Bibles that is absolutely not accurate. Look, if you will, at uh, the book of Colossians, verse 4, the book of Colossians, chapter 4, excuse me, and verse 16. When this epistle is read among you, Paul writes, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. How many of you have first and second Laodiceans in your Bible? You see, it was a book Paul wrote, but it was not inspired. Even the right apostles, even the apostles of Christ, wrote many letters that God did not choose to put into Scripture. All right, let's look, if we could, at some of these non-inspired false teachers. We're in, in the area of 2 Timothy. Just go with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We won't cover all of these. They're in your brochure. You can look at them. But notice 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, holding faith in a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Here is one verse of many that are listed there where you could see that Paul identifies People who very purposely, without any apology, without, any, uh, be, without it being inadvertent or unintentional, are actually twisting the Scripture to make the Bible say something it does not say. 
The next uh, little paragraph there says, Scripture examples prove the reliability of translation. We'll not turn this morning to Genesis 42, but if you want to go to that portion of Scripture, you're going to find there that Joseph was the governor of the land of Egypt during a time of famine. And people from all lands, plural, came to Egypt to buy corn. How do you suppose they conducted their business? They did that through an interpreter. We know that because when Joseph's brothers came, he didn't want to reveal himself to be their brother Joseph, so he spoke to them through an interpreter. You know what an interpreter was? He was a man hired to listen to one language and then tell the other people just whatever he wanted them to hear, right? No. He was a man who was trained in more than one language and whatever he heard his master say, he had to speak the exact message in the ears of the other language or lose his life. Because anything other than the exact message was a misrepresentation of what the master said. We see that again in the story of, of Hezekiah, where uh, Sennacherib, the wicked Assyrian king, sent messengers down to the wall, and the, the people on the wall of Jerusalem that was besieged by Sennacherib at that time said, speak to us in the Syrian language because we understand it. Don't speak in the Jews' language and discourage the people on the wall. Would the messenger of King Sennacherib be able to change the message? No. He'd lose his life if he did. He actually had to take an Assyrian message from Sennacherib, who was an Assyrian, and communicate it accurately in Hebrew to the people that were on the wall. Right? Nothing was lost. Nothing was gained. You know what? It is possible to translate from one language to another and be accurate. And that's very important for us to understand. I want you to see there in number 2, 2 Kings 18, 26. Just look at that verse with me very quickly. 2 Kings 18 and verse 26. 2 Kings 18 verse 26 speaks of that. Then said Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah and Shebna and Joah unto Rabshaki, Speak, I pray thee, to thy servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it, and talk not with us in the Jews' language. Don't translate this from one language to another. Don't, don't, don't tell us this in the Jews' language. We don't, want the, we don't want any of the citizens to hear what Sennacherib says and get discouraged. So we understand your language, so just tell us in your language. Oh, you see what's happening here is that a message is being translated from Sennacherib, who spoke Syrian, to Hebrew, to the people on the wall, to discourage them and to try to turn them away from trusting Hezekiah's leadership. We can see it again in the book of Esther. Esther chapter 1. Go with me to the book of Esther. This, to me, is the most phenomenal of these illustrations, the book of Esther. And we may not get through all of these... <clears throat> But in Esther chapter 1, you know the story of Esther. And I want you to see how many times in the book of Esther, the king or someone else in authority sent messages to 127 provinces of the Medo-Persian Empire. But what the Bible says here is it's not just 127 provinces, but notice how the Bible mentions languages here. Look, if you will, at, at Esther chapter 1, verse 22, For he sent letters into all the king's provinces, into every province according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language, that every man should bear rule in his own house, and that it should be published according to the language of every people. We know from the early verses there were 127 separate provinces of this massive empire. And these provinces were very likely language groups. What that means? That means the message of the emperor 
went out in over a hundred different languages. Was it a different message in every province? No, it was not. It was the same message understood by the people of those provinces. We see this happening again in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Now, it's Haman's letter that's going out. And notice the Bible says in verse 12, Then were the king's scribes called on the thirteenth day of the first month, and there was written according to all that Haman had commanded unto the king's lieutenants, and to the governors that were over every province, and to the rulers of every people of every province, according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language, in the name of King Ahasuerus was it written, and sealed with the king's ring. They couldn't send a different message to every different province, to every different language group. They could not change the message. They couldn't make it say what they wanted to, to say to every group. No, they had to translate it accurately so that no matter where you lived in the kingdom and no matter what language in the kingdom you spoke, you understood the decree that had come from Haman. Because translation can be accurate. And we need to understand that as we live in this culture of multiple Bibles, many of which are absolutely corrupt, many of which are translated by people who had an agenda to corrupt, any of which are translated by people, and I'm going to use this word as nicely as I can, who are just plain ignorant. Many of these new Bibles have an agenda. The Revised Standard Version from the way back in the early 1900s had an agenda. And the agenda of the Revised Standard Version was to belittle the deity of Christ. That's the agenda of the Revised Standard Version. The agenda of the New International Version that came out in 1979 is to diminish all matters of immorality so that immoral behavior of any degree of perversion looks more acceptable. That's the goal of the NIV. And if you study who translated it, there's no question about what I said. I will not go into detail, but just suffice it to say, that's the goal of the NIV. They are agenda-conscious Bibles. Now we have agenda-conscious Bibles translating all the male pronouns as feminine. And like it or not, believe it or not, there is a Queen James Bible. There is. We have this in the book of Acts chapter 2. We'll not go there this morning for lack of time. We're, we're, we're hurrying through, but you know how it was. The people stood up on the day of Pentecost, and here were men. They were all Galileans speaking the gospel. And if you look in Acts chapter, uh, chapter 1 there, uh, excuse me, chapter 2, toward the end of the passage I've cited, you'll see a list of all the different languages. I want to ask you, how many gospels were being preached that day? but it was in all these different languages. That right there proves that you can take a message and translate it into the language of the Elamites and the people of Mesopotamia and the, the Medes, all these different groups that are listed there. In Act let's just turn there. Let, let's just look at it quickly. I, we don't have a lot of time, but let's look at it. Acts chapter 2. Look at all these different language groups that are mentioned in Acts chapter 2. Beginning in verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, dwellers in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya around Cyrene, strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our tongues. They understood them in their own languages. What? The wonderful works of God. One message Many, many languages, because you can translate a message accurately. 
And there is no more accurate English version than the authorized version. There is no more accurate version than the authorized version. I want you to see, we've already looked at the number five there on page four, translations that are written into scripture. We looked there at uh, Matthew 1.23 where um, Emmanuel means God with us. Let's look, we're here in the book of Acts. Now skip over to chapter four and look at verse 36. Acts chapter four, if you will, and verse 36. Notice, and Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, look at the parenthesis, which is being interpreted the son of consolation. There it is. So we have names in the Bible, and it's all, it's found in the Old Testament, it's found in the New Testament, it's found all through Scripture. Names, which are then explained as to what, they're, what they actually meant. You know, when Leah gave birth to Judah, she said, now will I praise the Lord. You know what Judah means? Praise. <laughs> That's the reason she named him that. We have a man in the book of First Chronicles whose name is Jabez because his mother bare him with sorrow. You know what Jabez means? Sorrow, tears. Nothing's lost or gained or changed. And over and over the Bible translates names for us. Not just names, places. Mark 15, 22, we've already talked about it. Mentions Golgotha, the place of the skull. Uh, the next one, Mark 15. Let's look at verse uh, Mark 15 this morning. Here is a whole sentence translated for us. Jesus is on the cross. Mark 15, 34, he is there on the cross. And at the ninth hour, the Bible says, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Period. Does your Bible have a period there? No, it says, which is being interpreted. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see what God did there? He proves to us that you can take a whole sentence from one language and put it into another language. Did God translate it accurately? Or is the English version of that sentence something different than the Hebrew version? It would be blasphemy to say that the English version of that sentence is somehow a corrupted version of the Hebrew. God put it right into the Bible that if you're honest, you can translate the Bible honestly. Because God is the author of languages, Genesis 11. And it's God's will that people have the Bible so they can read it and find out how to be saved, so they can read it and find out how to live, so they can read it for themselves and not have what I talked about in, in Sunday school, this clergy laity division where you come to us, we are the geniuses, you are the fools, and you just come to us and we will tell you what the Bible says. That's not God's plan, it never has been. And many of the religions of the world follow that plan. And I'm not going to get up here this morning and list them all. Not just people's names and places and send, look at words. Words. John 1. This one, this one is so amazing to me. John 1 and verse 38. I love this. I love how God proves himself over and over in the Bible. Then Jesus turned. This is John 1, 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say being interpreted, Master. The Lord gave us right there what Rabbi means. Most of us have heard of a Rabbi. Most of us live, maybe know somebody who's Jewish who goes to a synagogue and has a Rabbi. But if we didn't have a translation, we would not know what the real definition of rabbi is. It's master. Look, if you will, at a special case. We're in John's Gospel. Look at John chapter 4, if you will, verse 25. I love this one too. John 4, 25, Jesus is in the middle of a conversation with the woman at the well. 
And you know the story. I'm not going to go through it all, but notice Jesus says here in John 4 and verse 25, the woman saith unto him, excuse me, the woman's talking, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. You see what she said? And you see what he said? When Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is Greek. Anointed one is English. And what a Hebrew understands when he hears the word Messiah or Mashiach, the actual pronunciation, and what a Greek understands when he hears the word Christos or Christ, and what an English person understands with the phrase anointed one are absolutely identical. And you know why she said it the way she said it? Because Jesus was speaking to her in Greek. And so she said, Messiah, when Messiah cometh, which is Christ? She didn't change the meaning. She didn't change who he really is. Now here comes the beauty. Here's the cherry on top of the Sunday. Jesus said, I that speak unto thee am he. There's only one way that what Jesus said is grammatically correct. Because she said, Messiah Christ. She said two. In order to be grammatically correct, Jesus would have to say, I that speak unto thee am both. Unless Messiah and Christ are one person, which they are, which makes what Jesus said not just doctrinally correct or academically correct, but grammatically correct. He. I am he. If you're a Greek, I am Christ. If you are a Hebrew, I am Messiah. If I am, a, if I am an English person, I am the anointed one. Nothing is gained, nothing's corrupted, nothing is lost, nothing added, nothing subtracted. Everything preserved by accurate translation. I want you to see this morning two unique examples from the book of Acts. Look, if you will, at chapter 14, verse 11. <clears throat> Most of us know that the book of Acts was written by Luke. Most of us know that the New Testament was written in Greek. So as you would uh, sit with Luke, and if you were reading with Luke along with him as he wrote the, the, gospel, uh, the book of Acts, it was written in Luke. But let's look what happens here in Acts chapter 14, verse 11. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lycaonia, the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. Here is something that was spoken, and I don't even know what this language is, Lycaonian. But Luke wrote it in Greek. How could Luke do that if translation automatically corrupts the message? There's no way Luke could have done that and have his writing be inspired and infallible if translating changed the message. Let's look at another one that I find very intriguing in the book of Acts chapter 21, verse 40. Paul is on trial before the Jews here. They have mobbed him. They have nearly killed him. The Roman uh, uh, centurion has gone down and, and has delivered him out of their hands and has carried him up on the stairs of, of what many Bible scholars believe was uh, the, the castle of Antonia. And <clears throat> notice the Bible says in verse uh, 35 of, of chapter 21, when he was come upon the stairs, so it was that he was born of the soldiers for the violence of the people. The multitude of the people followed after, crying away with him. And as Paul was to be led into the castle, he said unto the chief captain, May I speak unto thee, who said, Canst thou speak Greek? 
Art thou, art not thou that Egyptian which before these days made an upstart? And so the, the centurion thought that Paul was an Egyptian. Now Paul is speaking to him in Greek, and the guy is saying, Oh, can you talk in Greek? And let's remember, the book of Acts was written in Greek in the original. He explains in verse 39, he's a Jew from the city of Tarsus. And he asked for permission in verse 39 to speak to the people. Now look at verse 40. And when he had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with a hand unto the people. And when there was made a great silence, he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue. And everything Paul said in Acts chapter 22, verse 1, all the way down to the end of verse 21, Paul spoke it in Hebrew. Luke wrote it in Greek. Was it accurate or not? Do we actually have the message that Paul spoke? Did, did Luke accurately record it? Did he accurately translate it? Did he accurately write it down? Of course he did. Otherwise it could not be inspired scripture. And once again we see right in the Word of God proof that you can translate from one language to another. Accurate translation occurs in other fields of study. Going over to the top of page 5, it occurs in music. I'm not going to go over the piano, but I do know a little bit of music, and one thing I know is that A-flat and G-sharp are the same black key on the piano. But they are called different things in different keys. Same note. The exact same tone. I don't care if you call it A flat because you're in a flat key or G sharp because you're in a sharp key. It's the same tone. Nothing has changed. You see it in the next example here of mathematics. The number 8 can be translated as 7 plus 1, 13 minus 5, 2 times 4, 48 divided by 6, or 2 cubed. This example shows that accurate translation may convert the same Greek word to different English words without making a problem, depending on context and nuance and the beautiful resilience of the English language. We'll talk more about that tonight. So what I have given you here is that the inspired Word of God can be translated accurately example after example after example where it absolutely is a necessity that a message was not changed or corrupted or added to or subtracted from or diminished or expanded or exaggerated or changed or removed you can translate accurately. You can also translate inaccurately. All right, let's look at preservation. In the time we have remaining, preservation of inspiration, not multiple preservations. In faithful translation, the inspiration is preserved by a divine oversight of God. No re-inspiration occurs with successive translations. I want you to consider some preserved things. And the first one there is the nation Israel. And Israel has been in the news recently. When I wrote these notes out and sent them to Pastor Kagan, uh, Hamas and Israel were not in the conflict that they have been in over the last week and a half or two weeks. What a great way to remind us once again that Israel is a preserved nation. They have been attacked by large forces, enemy armies, not just twice their size, but 50 times their size. How many of you remember the 1967 war? Yeah, a few of us in here remember years that began with 19. I like the joke that was going around about this Israeli soldier uh, uh, who was uh, 
courting this young woman and he called her up and said honey you want to go out for supper uh, next Monday she said don't you know there's a war going on he said don't worry about it it'll be over <laughs> that's called the six-day war <laughs> because that's how long it took Israel to defeat a massive conglomerate of nations that descended upon their borders in 1967 they were outnumbered more than 10 to 1 the nation of Israel has been preserved when it was in the land. The nation of was Israel was preserved when it was dispersed all over the world. The nation of Israel has been preserved in, in miraculous ways time after time after time after time after time. God is not short-handed to preserve. He didn't say they wouldn't be attacked. They have been. He didn't say that Balaam and his curse would not corrupt them, because it did. He did not say that they would not uh, experience captivity in Babylon and the Medo-Persian Empire, because they did. He said, they will be preserved. And they have been. And no nation, no people group in all of history has been torn apart and persecuted and ripped up and trodden down and discriminated against and enslaved more than the Jewish people. But you can't get rid of them. Don't try. They are preserved. Here's another thing that God preserved, the redeemed soul. Some of you in this room, perhaps many, perhaps all of you that came to church this morning, other than the very small children, are saved. I read in Peter, kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. If you're saved this morning, have you been tempted since you were saved? Have you sinned since you were saved? Have you had hard days since you were saved? Have you had times in your life when you were away from God? Have you ever been backslidden? Have you ever said something you should not have said? Have you ever done something you should not have done? Are you still saved? How does God do that? How does He do that? Can I tell you, you can't explain how He does it scientifically. You can't put the answer in a test tube. You cannot write a mathematical formula for the preservation of the soul through testing and trial and temptation and turning away and, and sinning and iniquity and transgression. You cannot explain it any other way than to just say God preserves the soul. He's not shorthanded. He can preserve your soul. Here's another preserved thing. Look at it. The Son of God. He became flesh and dwelt among us, the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. He was tempted in all points like we are yet without sin. You see, God the Father could preserve his son and even though he came into this world and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross nothing 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 took away from his deity he thought it not robbery to be equal with god and what that means is that by becoming man jesus robbed god of not one zillionth of an ounce of his deity. His manhood took nothing from his deity. God preserved his deity in a man named Jesus Christ. Perhaps the greatest single miracle of all time. Perhaps. And if God can preserve the nation of Israel and the redeemed soul and the Son of God, why can we not just by faith accept that God wants this generation to have his truth too? And he's made sure that it's preserved for us. Why is that a problem in the minds of some people? 
Why should it be a problem? I will tell you it's not a matter of can or can't, because God can. It's a matter of our faith. It's a matter of the bigness of God in our thinking. It's a matter of whether God is powerful enough to make sure that every generation has the Bible, or whether God is up in heaven wringing his hands saying, oh no, what will I do for those people in the 21st century? Because they don't have my truth. We either have it or we don't. Number two under that section, consider these verses that express God's divine oversight of his inspired word. Look with me in this great Psalm 119, one of the greatest single divisions of the book of Psalms. <coughs> Toward the end of Psalm 119, look if you will at verse 152. Psalm 119, verse 152. Look at these beautiful words. Concerning thy testimonies, I have known of old that thou hast founded them. How long? Forever. Not for a time, not just in the original language, not just in the original manuscript, not just in the original writing, forever! Forever. Look, if you will, in the same psalm, verse 160. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. The enduring of the word of God has to do with the preservation of it. It cannot endure if God does not preserve it. And he preserves it for us through accurate translation from one language to another. That's the way God preserves his, his message. That's the way he got the message to all 127 provinces about the divine fiat of the king. That is the way he got the gospel to all those languages in Acts chapter 2. That is the way he got Paul's message to the Jews from Hebrew to Greek to English in our Bible by accurate translation, by taking down the exact message, not interpreting it based on my feelings. Realize the King James, there were 70 translators so that they could all countercheck each other to keep it being from one man who might have a slanted approach to a particular subject. By the way, the men who translated the King James or the authorized version, many of them knew 10 or 15 or even 20 languages fluently. The people translating Bibles today hardly know English to say nothing of being the equal of the men that God chose to give us a Bible that would last, I believe, until Jesus comes. Because God knew ahead of time that English was going to become the language of the whole world. How many of you have ever heard of teaching Chinese as a second language? I'm not against Chinese, but who does that? But all over China, there are ESL teachers teaching English as a second language. And they're all over Russia and they're all over the European countries, and they're all over the African countries, and they're all over the world. Why is that? Because in these last days, God is wanting to get his message to as many people as possible in the most glorious presentation of it in our day, right here. I give you another one. I give you these words from Jeremiah 36. Jeremiah 36, verse 23, the Bible says, 
And it came to pass that when Jehudi had read three or four leaves, he cut it with the penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the rule was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Very quickly, for lack of time, Jeremiah had written out a copy of his book and it was read before the king and one after another the king said cut that out and throw it in the fire the original of the book of Jeremiah was burned now look if you will at the last verse of this chapter verse 32 of Jeremiah 36 then took Jeremiah another roll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. You think Jeremiah had memorized his whole book? <laughs> How did he get it all down? It doesn't say he wrote some of the words. It said he wrote all of them. That's not possible unless God preserved. There would be no possibility that verse 32 of that chapter could contain the word or the phrase, all the words of the book, if God did not preserve it, even through fire. So, so in Psalm 119, it's preserved through time. In Jeremiah, it's preserved through a destructive attack. Luke 24 and verse 7 and 44. Look, if you will, at Luke chapter 24. We're coming quickly to the end of this. Luke 24 this morning, Jesus is in his post-resurrection ministry. He is teaching on the road to Emmaus. He is talking to Cleophas and we presume his wife as they travel uh, back to Emmaus on the road. And in verse 7, the Bible says, <coughs> excuse me, that Cleophas was talking to him. And in Luke 24, verse 7, we see saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Now skip to verse 44 of that chapter, and Jesus is now speaking. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written where? In the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. How did Jesus have access to them? How did the apostles have access? No scripture had been written for over 400 years. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, was written probably around 397, and now it is A.D. 29. It's been over 400 years since any scripture has been given. How did they have access to it? If it was not preserved. There's no way anybody in that audience, there's no way that Cleophas and the other people in that audience, there's no way the apostles or any of them could have had any understanding. That verse 44 would make no sense at all if what Moses wrote in the law and what the psalmist wrote in the Psalms and what the prophets wrote in history and prophecies if they were not preserved there'd be no point to that verse and it would be furthermore inaccurate because Jesus said those are the things written concerning me, meaning Jesus himself. So anything written concerning him that Jesus would be quoting had to have been preserved. <laughs> Otherwise, Jesus was misquoting if it had not been preserved. Let's look at one more quickly this morning. 2 John, this little tiny book contains a beautiful jewel. The book of 2 John, we have 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and then Revelation. Look, if you will, at 2 John. Notice how he starts this little epistle, the elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. 
for the truth's sake which dwelleth in us and what? Shall be with us forever. Did you get that? The truth that shall be with us, how long? That sounds like preservation to me. That's what it is. It doesn't just sound like preservation. That's what it is. And so all of this this morning comes down to two things. Number one, it comes down to the fact that the gospel is reliable. That men are sinners needing a Savior. I don't know any of you except the Kagans, and I've gotten around and shaken your hands, but please forgive me, I've forgotten your names. I don't know if you walked in here saved or lost. God knows, and probably you know whether you are absolutely certain this morning that your sins are forgiven, or if there are nagging doubts in your mind when you think about the possibility and indeed the undeniable reality that death is coming. Is there an absolute settled peace in your heart that you're saved? Or are you sitting here this morning saying, I sure wish I knew I was saved. I think I am. I hope I am. I, I, I kind of, I'm pretty certain. No, you know, pretty certain is not good enough when it comes to eternity. And everything that I've told you today bears witness to the fact that when somebody gets up and says Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, everything I've said to you today proves that that's a very reliable record. And when we read in Hebrews that he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them, we understand that that is an accurate statement, preserved for us even though Paul wrote it 2,000 years ago in another language. And when we hear that there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, we can understand that even though Luke wrote that over 2,000 years ago, it's still accurate today. And when we read John who says, Verily, verily, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. But it's passed from death unto life. And we realize that John wrote that at the end of the first century, so over 1,900 years ago. It's still accurate today. And if you believe on him, he said, He that believeth on me shall never thirst. You can be saved today and know it. You can take of the water of life freely, as the Spirit of God says at the end of the very last book, as John closes out the Scripture in the book of Revelation, the Spirit and the bride say, come. And he says there that him that is a thirst, let him come and take of the water of life freely. That's an accurate, invitation. Everything that I've said today tells me that if you're lost, you can be saved today if you will repent and believe the gospel. Everything I've said to you today tells me if you're already a believer that you can know how to live the Christian life. You can know that if you've never been baptized by immersion, you should be. You can know that if you're saved and baptized, that you ought to join or add yourself into a Bible-preaching church. I don't know if you're members, guests. I don't know who you are. So I can say that without stepping on anybody's toes. I love being an evangelist. 
The pastor knows everything, and he knows as soon as I say this, so-and-so's going to think, I'm on to him now. I don't have that problem. It's fun being an evangelist. You ought to try it someday, Brother Kagan. Give yourself another 20 years. These people don't want to have to look for another preacher. I can tell you that if you're saved based on a reliable Bible, the most important thing in all the world is for you to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. To love him first and most and best is the entire message of this perfectly inspired, preserved book. The second greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself, and I can tell you with all authority that that's accurate. That's not something we made up. And it doesn't mean love your neighbor like you love yourself. That is not what that means because the golden rule, what we call the golden rule, interprets that second commandment for us when the Bible says this, as you would that men do unto you, so do ye also unto them. In other words, loving your neighbor means you love other people the way you would like them to love you. You say, well, preacher, everybody today is talking about loving yourself. Where does that come in? That's in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where the Bible says in the last days perilous times shall come because men will be lovers of their own selves. Loving yourself is the absolute worst thing you can ever do. It'll make a monster out of you. If you read 2 Timothy 3, all the sins and crimes of mankind start with self-love. Look at 2 Timothy 3 sometime. It reads like today's newspaper. It's horrible what men can do when they love themselves. And that goes for women. Why do we have abortion in our country today? Because people love themselves. Why do we have every kind of immorality? Because people love themselves. Why do we have abuse that is so ghastly we would not talk about it in a mixed audience to say nothing about an audience with small children? Because people love themselves. I can tell you on the authority of this book, nothing in the world for you as a believer more important than loving God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. In fact, everything that I preach to you out of this book it's not my authority. It's his. Because this is an inspired and preserved copy, translation, exactly what God would say in the English language. Thank you for listening today. For more information about Grace Baptist Church, please visit our website at gracebaptistofkettering.org. And remember, you are always welcome at Grace Baptist Church.